This is a Federal News Network podcast. The following program is produced and furnished in conjunction with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement, which is entirely responsible for its content. Welcome to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement on Federal News Network. Off the Shelf gives a voice to commercial service and product companies selling in the federal market. Roger speaks to members and government officials about procurement policy, trends, innovations, and debate. Now your host, Roger Waldron. Today, my guest on Off the Shelf is Steve Schooner. Steve is the National Sabinic Professor of Government Procurement Law at the George Washington University Law School. And today we're going to be talking about all things procurement. Uh, We're heading towards the end of the calendar year. Um, Lots of interesting things. And uh, Steve, welcome to the show. Always great to be on the show. Thanks for having me, Roger. Well, why don't we start with just, you know, from a procurement perspective, you know, just going through different transitions that I did when I was in government and then outside of government. I'd like to get your, your sort of sense from a procurement policy perspective, you know, what, what would you expect to see if there is a re-election? Um, and what would you expect to see if there's a change administration? So why don't we start with, you know, you know, the stat, maintaining the status quo and then go into if there's a change administrations. Sure. So trying to keep it as neutral as possible. I think that if there's a re-election, what you have to acknowledge is this is a a fundamental drift towards, in many ways, the end of the administrative state, at least as we've thought about it in our professional lifetimes. So what we've really seen for the last four years is an administration that made no bones about the fact when it was coming in that its goal was to deregulate and, in effect, dilute or reduce the power and the reach of the federal government. So We've seen fewer rules promulgated. We've seen staggering delays between congressional legislation and, for example, in our field, when rules actually make their way into the federal acquisition regulation. We've seen all but inactive Federal Acquisition Regulation Council. But across the board, remember, this administration began with a two-for-one regulatory reduction goal. But it's much, much broader than that. In environmental areas, it's literally reducing regulation that, again, is fundamental to things like clean air and water. But the deregulatory instinct is dramatic. Now, in procurement, we've also seen a complete rejection of the common respect for the system and the rules and frankly, the norms. And it began at the very, very beginning with everything from Air Force One to what we later saw with a staggering amount of activity with regard to potential conflicts in the Jedi procurement. You see it when you hear names like Fisher, Sand, and Gravel. And if you've been paying any attention at all in the last six to eight months, If you read the Rick Bright whistleblower complaint about what's happening with regard to vaccine development, if you've been following the coronavirus task force and any number of the procurements that have been awarded, it's utterly frightening. So it's not really a sustainable procurement system the way we know it. Okay, but let's just consider the alternative. Whether you favor a potential Biden administration or not, 
there's no question that the task of a new administration would be not only to reestablish the norms, but to undo any number of executive orders, for example, particularly the last couple uh, that were issued just recently. But you would see much more regulatory activity. And while many of us are concerned about over-regulation in the field, some of it is incredibly important, particularly with regard to stability, conflicts of interest, and the like. Uh, but also, the, the amount of activity in terms of undoing would be dramatic. Uh, just one quick analogy uh, before, before I, I pause for a second. I'm reminded that after the Clinton administration, the first thing the Bush administration did was undo the contractor labor responsibility rules. So there was a massive regulatory effort and it was immediately undone. These kinds of changes happen, but the volume of that kind of activity, if there's a Biden administration, is going to be staggering. Yeah, um, that's interesting. And I, one area that I wanted to drill down on a little bit just to get your take on is, you know, just looking forward, and I think it's looking forward just generally in any event, is um, sustainability and sustainable procurement. And I know you just uh, had an article published in NCMA's contract management magazine talking about sustainable procurement. Um, can you talk a little bit about the, the thesis of your article sure, and sure. what you're looking at? Well, so even before I get to the thesis, well, let me say one word about the thesis and then how I got there. Okay. So the big thing that I guess I want to communicate is unless there is a reelection, if there is a Biden administration, or again, I think the most likely scenario that there is change, one of the things that we haven't been paying enough attention to, and one of the most dramatic changes in the future of acquisition is going to be that we're going to have to begin a conversation and relatively rapidly embrace changed practices, policies, and procedures in sustainable procurement. Now, just taking a quick step back, let me say two things in terms of a predicate, and we can develop both of these later. But the first is, Climate change is real, it's happening, it's accelerating, and it's going to get worse quickly unless dramatic things happen. All right, we can talk more about that a little bit later. Second, in the United States, particularly with this administration, and even more so after this administration withdrew the United States from the Paris Accord, we have not been part of a global conversation that is incredibly significant. You go to any procurement conference around the world, and odds are one of the most significant topics that procurement professionals are talking about at the major international organizations, country by country, is they're talking about how to rethink their procurement systems so that they can get involved in sustainable procurement, what we used to call green procurement or environmentally uh, preferable procurement, but it's much, much broader than that. So the bottom line is, it's important. We're behind, and the stakes are enormous. So, One Steve, I just just to wrap of what when you talk about where you're, we're behind, is another aspect of this is that is the federal government's behind the private sector on this as well, isn't it? I mean, I, you know, you read oh, about yeah, all the time, you know, major companies making investments in you know green technologies and lead buildings, etc., that sort of stuff. Is that? I think you make a tremendous point. So most of corporate America gets it. 
I don't think there's any question that the public understands it. And so the recalcitrance or the digging in the heels of the government is not only out of step with the global norms, but I do think that in large part, it's inconsistent with what many of the more sophisticated companies are saying. Now, let me also be unequivocally clear. Many of the corporations are doing some of the cosmetic things or the things that are consumer or public friendly. It's pretty clear that they're not doing enough of the really critical things that need to be done. I mean, we need dramatic change. And I guess the point that struck me the most in some of the reading I've been doing over the last year on this is we all think that we can make a difference. So, you know, no big shocker to anybody who knows me that I drive a Prius, and that's basically all I've driven for more than a decade. We participate in our local composting community so that our waste stream is different. We are obsessive recyclers, and I bike commute or ride the metro whenever I can. But what the research shows is it doesn't make any difference. Individually, we cannot take the steps that are necessary to make the kinds of changes we need to to address climate change and global warming. So only governments are going to be able to be able to do that, to force the dramatic change. And frankly, it's one of the issues that I think a lot of the American public is going to be voting on, even though you don't hear it really talked about much at the debates or elsewhere. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. So tee up your article a little bit more. I mean, you okay. can speed it up, but yeah, yeah, sure. let's get okay. into the meat of it. All right. So let me say two things about what, what the article really focuses on. If we subdivide the field, there are many, many things that we're going to need to think about, particularly with regard to commercial items, commercial off the shelf, how we think about the schedules. And to some extent, that might be easier because we already know about things like Energy Star. But on the bigger, more significant procurements, I think one of the ways that we're really going to change our behavior is we must avoid, we must stop being ruled by the tyranny of low price. We have got to address the real cost of the things that we buy. And in economic terms, what I'll talk about there is externalities, because, for example, one of the reasons we're so fossil fuel dependent today is that fossil fuels have been heavily subsidized by the government. You don't pay for the harms that they cause. And what we need to be thinking about is when we purchase a solution, what are the side effects or the byproducts of that? And we need to work that into the price. And frankly, that's going to be hard. But I could talk more about that later. Yeah, that's, that is going to be really hard. <laughs> uh, and when we're back, we will we'll continue the conversation. And also, I wanted to also talk about, you know, it's interesting your article brings up a little bit about DOD's approach sure. to this and that, that their recognition of the challenge that we're facing. So. My guest today is Steve Schooner. He's a National Sabinic Professor of Government Procurement Law at the George Washington University Law School. I'm Roger Waldron, and you're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron. My guest today is Steve Schooner. He is the National Sabinic Professor of Government Procurement Law at the George Washington University Law School. Um, and we're talking sustainable procurement, our green procurement, um, what the future may may look like in that regard. And I, Steve, you started talking about uh, the tyranny of low price and externalities and how you factor that into, you know, the overall cost benefit analysis. But first, let's talk a little bit about because we mentioned at the very end, you know, the DOD's approach to 
addressing sustainability, you know, in their operations and what they're thinking about. And it's fascinating to read your article. You've got, you touch on that a fair amount. Yeah, absolutely. And and again, we can talk more about some of the other literature that's increasingly becoming more accessible to the public. I mean, obviously, you've got any number of domestic and international scientific reports we can talk about, too. But let's just talk about the, the stuff out in the public domain. Maybe one of the most striking books that I read in terms of how all this affects procurement was Michael Clare's book called All Hell Breaking Loose, The Pentagon's Perspective on Climate Change. And the book came out just a little bit over a year ago, so a couple years into the Trump administration. And the underlying point of the book is that this administration, again, the same administration that withdrew from the Paris Climate Accord, made clear that it didn't want government agencies talking about climate change. It didn't want agencies making efforts to address the issues related to climate change. And so the remarkable thing about the book is the Defense Department, again, worried about the defense of the United States, basically ignored, in large part, the guidance from the top. So they don't use the prohibited words climate change. They do almost everything they do very, very quietly. But at the highest levels of strategic planning and decision making, the Department of Defense is literally frightened by the prospects of continued climate change. Now, there's a really cool uh, rubric that Claire uses that I really, really likes. But for me, the, the best part of the book is he repurposes the term ladder of escalation. Okay, so the interesting thing is ladder of escalation was originally something that led to how the great powers eventually get to nuclear war, which is someplace we don't want to get to. But in the book, what Claire does is he repurposes it and he talks about a ladder of escalation where the armed forces, the military, is, because of climate change, called upon to deal with multiple overlapping emergencies. So he talks about the fact that climate change, and we've seen this, leads to humanitarian disaster relief demands. And then also, there are situations where the Department of Defense might be called in to help beleaguered foreign states. And then there's also the other issue that climate change will eventually interrupt global supply chains, and the most important being the food chains. And then add on top of that a couple other things, for example, some military installations are going to be inaccessible or dysfunctional, whether due to high heat or flooding or something else. And then on top of that, he talks about the fact that in the not-too-distant future, the Navy may have to deal with an entire new ocean to protect. So we've never really thought about fighting or protecting the Arctic Ocean. But bottom line is, with the melting of the ice on the poles, not only is there going to be transit, but there's going to be disputes over oil-rich portions of the planet where we've never had to fight before. But his point is that the Defense Department, even though they're not allowed to talk about climate change publicly, they're experimenting with different issues to try to address it. And they've done everything from using biofuels in their ships to many, many other issues. Look, one thing that we're having a global conversation about is whether we're going to need to return to nuclear. But the key point in all of this is that 
we're going to have to make massive changes in what we buy and the way we buy. Now, one of the problems that all this brings up, and here we get back to levels of complexity, right? Is this a requirements issue or is this a procurement issue? You know, I'll talk more later about what we used to do in the 1990s, but we have a couple pretty interesting case studies from the 1990s about the difference between requirements generators, the program managers and the heads of the agencies, or the contracting officials. So one, what I would call the biggest disaster story from the 1990s, is most of the people in our field over 50 remember that we used to have a mandatory evaluation factor for environmentally preferable solutions. So, you know, think about this just for a second. Before 1996, right, you had to consider price, you had to consider quality, but there was also a mandate with regard to the new one was past performance, but there was one for environmental objectives. And then literally, boom, it was taken out of the FAR in the late 1990s. So in that situation, the burden was put on the contracting official as part of the acquisition planning phase to factor that into the procurement. That's gone today. But one of the ones that I always found fascinating in terms of commercial items was the way that we dealt with recycled paper. So all of the agencies kept telling the procurement community to buy recycled paper instead of new paper. And this is back in the era where GSA still had warehouses. But bottom line is everybody kept ordering virgin paper. So literally what the federal environmental executive did is she went to the Justice Department, which obviously kills a lot of trees, and they went to DOD, another really big agency, and they entered into what were called substitution agreements. And they basically got the agencies to agree to authorize GSA that whenever somebody ordered virgin paper, that they would send them recycled paper anyway. Right. Overnight, we went from 10% to over 70% recycled paper use. That's just an example of how you change behavior. But there, the requirements generators were saying the right thing, but nobody was doing it. And so they literally just came up with a workaround on that. Right. Well, that's that, that always that age old issue, right? The, you know, the communication engagement between the program managers, the requirement holder and the, actu- and the acquisition workforce. And right. how you bridge that communication. You talk about externalities in the article and life cycle costs. And, you know, I know you talk about, you've talked about, that's a theme of yours. Yeah, absolutely. On the show before, you know, so you're talking about factoring into the life cycle cost, you know, potential savings as a result of changing behaviors or change, you know, or, or reducing, you know, greenhouse gases and things like that. That's going to be tough to do. Right. Absolutely. I, I think this is the elephant in the room on the larger procurement. So, our starting point is that one of the worst habits we have in procurement is we focus on things that are easy to measure. And this is what we've talked about many times in the past. So go to FPDS, the Federal Procurement Data System, or now go to SAM, wherever you're going to get your data, maybe on usaspending.gov. And what you'll find is massive accumulations and beautiful charts showing useless data. We know how much money we spend. We know where it went. We know who got it. We know which states. We know which contractors. We know whether contractors complete their work on time. We know whether they're late. We know whether they went to small businesses or women-owned businesses or SDVOSBs, okay? 
But what we don't know are the only things that matter to consumers. Did I like it? And did I think I got value for money? Did it work? Okay. So we can come back to GSA and the prices paid portal and what a fool's errand that is. And similarly, think about how much energy that we spend on the service contractor inventory. For more than a decade, we have been making people count the number of hours or basically the full-time equivalents of service contractors. Who cares? All right. I know that someone thinks the data will someday be useful, but I haven't seen the use yet. No one is changing their behavior based on how many hours of services they procure. I just want to know, did the task get completed? Was it done well? Was it efficient? Okay. All right. So against that backdrop. Yeah. Did it advance the mission? Thank you, Roger. Why do we buy? We buy so that the agency can accomplish the mission when it doesn't have enough internal resources. Okay, so here's the big takeaway. The way that we avoid the tyranny of low price is to think in terms of life cycle cost. Life cycle cost, as a general rule, an economist would tell you, it's five things. Yes, it includes purchase price, but it also includes... What? When you come back, you can ah, let the audience know what those five things are. Okay, great. Good perfect, time for perfect break. break. So, <laughs> great. My guest today is Steve Schooner. He's a National Sabinic Professor of Government Procurement Law at the George Washington University Law School. And I'm Roger Waldron, and you're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron. My guest today is Steve Schooner. He is the National Sabinic Professor of Government Procurement Law at the George Washington University Law School. We're talking sustainable procurement, and Steve just had an article published in NCMA's Contract Management Magazine, Warming Up to Sustainable Procurement. Um, I wanted to work that title in there, uh, uh, Steve. Um, So when we took the break, you were about to go through the, I guess, five elements of life cycle costs. Yeah, we'll do do five and a half today. Okay, great. (laughs) A bonus. All right, so so here's the big issue. As we were talking about before the break, the, the worst thing that we can do in our procurement system is obsess over low prices. Low prices without determining whether something meets your need or works or lasts That doesn't make any sense. So most economists would focus instead on life cycle cost or total cost of ownership or total ownership costs. Again, you use whatever acronym you want. There are minor differences, but the nomenclature is the least important thing. What we were saying before the break is an economist thinks about life cycle cost in terms of five things generally. Let's start with purchase price, right? How much did you pay out of pocket or what was the the expenditure at the time you entered into the contract. Second, they factor in transaction costs. How much resources, time, and energy did you spend on the transaction? And of course, transaction costs is the argument for why we have a micro-purchase threshold and a simplified acquisition threshold. The idea is there's a point of diminishing return on your transaction costs. The next two things are the ones that consumers understand the most. And that's operating costs and maintenance costs. The typical example that my students always get, if you buy an automobile, your operating costs are your fuel and your oil. You buy a bigger, heavier car, you're going to spend more in fuel. You buy a lighter car, you have less fuel costs. One of those Priuses, right? Exactly. Okay. (laughs) All right. And then your maintenance costs are 
not only how much do you spend working on it, but also what happens when it's in for service and you need a replacement, okay? But that's all part of maintenance. All right. The other thing that the economist thinks about is disposition costs. And remember, disposition costs can be a positive or a negative number. So let's go back to my car example. You buy a nice Mercedes-Benz or a Lexus or some kind of a high-quality automobile, you drive it for four or five years. When you resell that car, you get back much of what you paid for it. And that reduces your total ownership cost experience extrapolated over the amount of time for which you drove it, okay? If you buy an inexpensive car and drive it into the ground, you have no resale. But there's also negative costs. My favorite example being a nuclear submarine costs more than a billion dollars, but after its useful life, it costs even more than that to decommission it or take it apart. So don't tell me that a nuclear submarine costs a billion dollars to buy if you're not going to acknowledge that you have to spend another billion dollars to decommission it when you're done. That's part of the cost of that system. Okay, but here's the big one. Not only do we need to totally rethink our metrics so that we're avoiding the tyranny of low price and think in terms of life cycle costs, now we have to add in externalities. In other words, when you buy the inexpensive fossil fuel solution, you have not, in terms of the government, acknowledged the fact that you are contributing to dirtier air, more people are going to get sick, the costs or the burden on the healthcare program is going to go up, and in the long run, the planet is going to be at risk. So this is one of the reasons that some people talk in terms of carbon taxes and other ways to represent this, but the externalities would in effect attempt to balance the purchase price with other byproducts. My favorite example is government furnished property, all right? The FAR specifically talks about the fact that if you're a contractor and you have access to government facilities or government jigs or tools or machines or something like that, the FAR specifically talks about the fact that the contracting officer is supposed to neutralize that advantage so that new competitors can compete on even footing. That's hard, but we do it, okay? So we need to be part of the global conversation in understanding that when you go to buy a fleet of automobiles, yes, you should be willing to pay more for possibly an electric or a hybrid or a cleaner vehicle, but you should also, as part of the acquisition planning process, be thinking about alternatives like public transportation or something that would have even greater potential impacts on the overall environment, because these things are important in the long term. But the key point here is all of the research demonstrates that we have artificially deflated the cost of fossil fuel solutions because we haven't had to pay for the externalities. Americans understand that they pay more taxes because oftentimes when they buy gasoline, they're subsidizing the roads that they drive on. But in Europe, gasoline costs much more because those governments recognize that they need disincentives to get people out of their automobiles because it's in everyone's best interest. It's not just less traffic, but it's better for the environment. So externalities is going to be a really big issue. So when you, when you start 
thinking about this and the complexity of it, um, or less complexity, the boy you described it, right, <laughs> than, than one would anticipate. So the acquisition workforce, um, that's a key component of this. I mean, you've got the requirements holder, and they bring their expertise to the table, and they'll bring their expertise on sustainability that's table, you know, but how do you get the acquisition workforce, you know, up and running on this kind of thing? Yeah. So let me start with baby steps. I mean, one of the reasons I wrote the article is we got to start talking about it and that's not a small item. I mean, for example, as many of you know, the national contract management association recently got approval from ANSI. You know, they now have a, an approved standard for knowledge in contract management. And that doesn't really talk about sustainable acquisition. NCMA's body of knowledge describes sustainable acquisition, but doesn't talk about it in any meaningful way. The bottom line is we need to start the conversation. And in order for, before we even really start changing behavior, we need people to be thinking in these terms. So that's really, really big. All right, then we need to be part of a global conversation. There's an incredibly rich literature in other countries on different approaches and case studies and models and experiments. But you got to begin somewhere. So first, we have to start talking about it. Then we need to think about how we're going to prioritize. Then we need to legislate. We need to regulate. We need to train. All those things are very, very important. But let me give you the good news on this. You know, one thing that we don't talk enough about, it's really easy for us when we talk about the acquisition workforce to talk about the fact that we haven't had enough people probably for 20 years at this point, and definitely not since 2008. But the interesting generational shift that we've seen is that if you look at the post-Dawia era and the post-Klinger-Cohen era, which is the civilian statute catch-up, we've been hiring now for more than a decade incredibly talented young acquisition professionals. And in survey after survey, what do they complain about? They complain that we created new rules so that you had to have a degree, you had to have business training so that you could be this qualified business manager, and then we make them fill out forms and do objective low-price shootouts. So I believe that our acquisition workforce, particularly the younger generation, is eminently qualified to not only learn these skills, but embrace them. I am confident that the younger portion of our acquisition workforce is highly fixated on the fact that their kids are going to want to breathe air and drink clean water and live in a planet where they don't have to move because the coasts are shrinking. So I'm incredibly optimistic about this, but it is going to require some leadership. And as I said earlier, we're going to need legislation, regulation, training, and frankly, the real breakthroughs are going to come with pilot programs, case studies, and shared experiences. But we got a lot of work to do. Yeah, so you know what, Steve, we're right up on the break. Um, when we come back, I do have a question. I always want to think about this. There's always this you know, question of um, the, I don't know if it's the push, the pull, the creating the incentives, and the role the government plays versus the private sector. And I just want to get your thoughts. You know, you can have sustainable procurement. You start measuring these things. But oftentimes, the private sector gets ahead of, you know, if the right economic incentives are in place. Absolutely. These things and solve these things. And we'll solve this before the government 
has the impact that it's trying to achieve. So and I'd like to get a little bit on that. And then I'm going to ask you for some uh, book recommendations. Outstanding. Okay. My guest today is Steve Schooner. He is the National Sabinic Professor of Government Procurement Law at the George Washington University Law School. I'm Roger Waldron, and you're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. When we need help, we turn to government. When government needs help, they turn to Federal News Network. Federal News Network, helping feds meet their mission. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldner. My guest today is Steve Schooner. He's a national spinning professor of government procurement law at the George Washington University Law School. We've been talking about sustainable procurement. Uh, Steve has uh, recently had in the October uh, issue of Contract Management uh, Magazine, Warming Up to Sustainable Procurement is his article. And uh, so we'll continue that conversation. And Steve, when we took the break, just want to get your thoughts on, you know, the, the push-pull, the incentives, government action versus the private sector. And there's not, it's obviously going to be a solution to the issues and, and going to involve all aspects of society. But just, you, oftentimes you can see the private sector gets ahead of government on these kind of things. Um, your thoughts? Yeah, so I, I think you hit the nail on the head, and we have so many good examples these days. Probably for most people in the public, the best modern example is the commercialization of space and particularly the commercial launch, where we've seen the private sector basically picked up the torch where the government solution and the big um, legacy contractors appear to have uh, gotten a little bit, shall we say, stale in that regard. So we've made great strides. But think about some of the really encouraging things we're, we're seeing. Frankly, I think we're going to see more activity in terms of prizes and challenges. So I'm a big fan of prizes, challenges, and contests generally. Uh, many of you know that the Wright brothers made all of their early money winning contests, uh, just like Lindbergh flying across the ocean, right? But prizes are potent incentives for innovation. And trust me, the private sector wants to be on the cutting edge because the people who come up with the best solutions are going to make great wealth over time. I think one of the hardest things for the acquisition workforce, though, is to understand that for each new requirement, the solution is not to do what you did last time, or to assume that you actually understand what the market can do. And, you know, we talk with our students so much about the fact that market research is underemphasized in federal procurement. But in a global economy with a global supply chain and a magical thing called the Internet, there is no reason to assume that the thing that you bought five years ago, let alone last year, let alone last month or last week, is the best solution today. And I think that for anyone who has doubts about that, I just encourage you to think in your lifetime about the evolution we've seen in terms of how we communicate by telephone and how we get access to our music. And I think that if you think about those two examples, you realize that if you're not doing creative market research, you're not really getting the answers you need. But I'm optimistic about the private sector. Yeah, well, the imperative of that market research, I mean, the the pace of change is only going to continue to accelerate, you know. Right. But it's not just the pace of change. It's the not falling into the assumption that you understand what the market is. Right. So, for example, that's understanding things change. 
Right. So if you go into the marketplace looking for a turntable on which to play your long play vinyl record, you're never going to find a CD a CD player, nor are you going to find a downloadable vehicle that you might be able to purchase by the month rather than buying individual songs. The entire market's changed. Right. So, but you said I could talk about books. I love to talk about books. Right. I, yeah. And I, I will say people are, some people are buying, you know, those turntables again and then the vinyl, right? Exactly. I, I think it's cool. Kind of the legacy stuff, you know, it's yeah. a little bit of nostalgia there. So to the extent that I highlighted a few books in the article about reading about climate change, let me just offer a few accessible books if you're interested in doing more reading. I think probably the best one I've read is Davis Wallace Wells's The Uninhabitable Earth, Life After Warming. Um, it's, it's depressing. It's a little bit hard to stomach, but it's a wonderfully comprehensive tour of the enormity of the problem. If you want something that's a little bit kinder or more gentler, I might encourage Hope Jarin's The Story of More, How We Got to Climate Change and Where We Go From Here. And that's, it's, it's, it's much of the same information, but it's a little bit less overwhelmingly depressive. Uh, a couple others that I really, really liked, in addition to Clark's All Hell Breaking Loose, there's a wonderful book by Elizabeth Rush called Rising, which is about the rising of the waters, the coasts, and the fact that east, west, north, and south, um, the land as we know it is going to shrink and the nature of tidal communities are going to be dramatically impacted. Uh, That's actually more literary than the others. But the other one, you know, I know that a lot of you would rather read fiction than nonfiction. There's a wonderful book called The Collapse of Western Civilization by Naomi Oreskes and her co-author. But these are hardcore Uh, science historians who basically wrote a futuristic sci-fi account of where we're headed in literally a few decades. So what, what the world will look like a century from now, if we don't step up on global warming and the thesis is of course, Western civilization, as you know, it will be no more. Now I'm depressed. (laughs) Okay. So uh, on a slightly more optimistic note, let me just say a couple of things about reading. Um, You know, I think that as as a broad reader, it's impossible to have spent much of this calendar year, particularly the last six months, without having done some reading from some of the new Black Lives Matters reading lists. And so I have a bunch of favorites, both in terms of nonfiction and fiction. So you know, everybody's got to get to these issues in their own way. I mean, I think none of us are going to change the world tomorrow, but I do think that we do need to open our minds and broaden our horizons. So the three nonfiction that I probably enjoyed the most, I really liked Kendi's How to Be Anti-Racist. I thought it was well done. It's obviously popular, and he's just a good writer. The British one that I really liked was Edo Lodge's book, Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race. And what I like about it is she just lays it out there. And I think that it's, if, if you feel like you know everything about the topic, read the book. It'll really open your mind. Uh, for the historians and particularly for the lawyers out there, and obviously my students tend to be lawyers, this one's a little bit older. But I love Gilbert King's Pulitzer Prize winner, The Devil in the Grove. And that's about uh, Ocala County down in Florida. And 
in many ways, it's about the birth of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. But if you think that um, that race is something that we've got under control in the United States, particularly in the concept of policing, that one's a real eye-opener. Let me just mention two in fiction, because again, I think there's some great, great stuff out here. Both of these are big prize winners. Uh, Colin Whitehead's The Nickel Boys is a relatively short but brilliant piece of fiction, a fitting award winner, really, really uh, interesting piece, nice twist at the end, but again, kind of open your eyes onto some issues. The other one that I really liked was the Booker Prize winner last year, Bernadine Evaristo's Girl, Woman, Other. That's Girl, Woman, Other. Um, This is going to make a lot of people uncomfortable, but if you're a literary reader and you're willing to think creatively about how other people view the world. I thought that book was really, really nice. And I think the big picture on all this stuff is, you know, we have our work cut out for us and we're going to have to start somewhere. But again, I've been talking for a while. Oh, I got one more book for your government contracts readers. I read a lot of sci-fi and cyberpunk and I was highly amused by William Gibson's uh, newest book. Some of you may know that William Gibson is known as the father of cyberpunk. He's the one who basically is often credited with the word avatar. But his newest book called Agency has a very, very significant government contracts angle on it. So kind of a futuristic cyberpunk approach uh, where basically the whole thing derives from a government contract run amok. Well, uh, Steve, with with all those recommendations, uh, people are going to have a whole new library. (laughs) I hope so. (laughs) Well, um, it's a great conversation. I did want one. We have about a minute left, and I want to go okay. back to the one one issue and just how how do you break that tyranny of the low price? Is it is a question of leadership? Is it uh, you know you know executive leadership? Is it on the hill? How do you break that that tyranny? So I think the short the short answer is you are correct that it starts at the top in terms of leadership and tone, but I think that the easiest way to break it is to change the way that we measure. People respond to what gets measured. And if the federal government did the same thing that the private sector did, which was constantly survey on outcomes and customer satisfaction, would go a long way there. I mean, look, the failure of past performance was we measure the contracting officer's shopping experience and not the quality or the sustainability of the goods. But we can do this. So I think all we have to do is follow the private sector and focus on customer satisfaction instead of price. All right, but it's going to take leadership to change the, to change those measures. So I want to thank my guest today, Steve Schooner. He's a Nash and Sabinic Professor of Government Procurement Law at the George Washington University Law School. I'm Roger Waldron, and you've been listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. You've been listening to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement on Federal News Network. Tune in Tuesday mornings at 11 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One.